Hello, this is Curtis Edwards, Vice President of Investor Relations at Hudson Investing. Are you ready to start building your multifamily portfolio? Kent and I are excited to announce our newest deal in Spartanburg, South Carolina. This 157-unit property offers a unique chance to acquire a B-class value-add property for just $120,000 per door. This is well below replacement costs. De-risking the deal even further is a favorable loan assumption with over six years remaining at 3.73% fixed. With 50 economic development projects underway and 70,000 jobs within a 20-minute drive, the South Carolina upstate region is primed for above-average job, population, and rent growth. Don't miss out on this exclusive deal. Find the link in the description notes to learn how you can invest. My real estate clients are only in real estate because nothing else can give them the returns that real estate can give them. The rest of the investing world has found it. And the challenge with that is that um, when, when you come in and you haven't spent your life in an industry, you're relying a great deal on other people's expertise. So being able to assess that and make good decisions about who you're investing your money with or who you're learning from is, is, the, is the difference maker. Welcome to Right Around Real Estate, the show about how to passively invest like a pro. On each episode, I interview real estate experts who give their top investing advice, strategies, and tools, and I break down their insights into practical steps to avoid the pitfalls and make better investments. I want to help you passively invest like a pro. This is Ritter on Real Estate, and I'm your host, Kent Ritter. Hello, fellow investors. Welcome to another episode of Ritter on Real Estate, where we teach you how to passively invest like a pro. Today, my guest is Doug Laudmel. He's a managing partner of Laudmel and Laudmel PC, one of the nation's leading asset protection law firms. Today, Doug's law firm is responsible for protecting over $4 billion in client assets, and he spends much of his time teaching, speaking, and leading thousands of business owners, corporate executives, investors, and other professionals who have often worked most of their lives to accumulate wealth of various types, including real estate and securities. Doug is also the author of a book, The Lawsuit Lottery, The Hijacking of Justice in America. Doug, thanks for coming on the show today. Yeah, Kent, glad to be here. Very cool. Well, I'm, I'm excited to dig in. You know, asset protection is extremely important to, to all of us real estate investors out there. And probably one of the uh, either little, little smallest research or less researched mm -hmm. and, and, and little understood piece of this whole puzzle, right? So I think great to dig in today and help educate folks on, on how they can, you know, keep what they've got. Uh, but before we dig into all the, all the nitty gritty, why don't you just start from the top and, and tell us about yourself and how you got to where you are today? Sure, sure. So uh, I'm an attorney and uh, went to law school in New York City. Prior to that, I worked on Wall Street in the risk management uh, sector. So helping understand risk. And, and that was a huge eye opener because I remember one day looking at a report um, and it showed that we, we won 96% of all the trades that the firm I worked for was involved in. I went to my boss, I said, how is it that we win 96% of the trades? I mean, this is, this is easy money. He goes, yeah, it's not, that's, it's not about how, how our trade win percentage. It's those 4% that we lose, we lose more than we ever won. So risk management is a perception of understanding the scale of that risk. Um, I, I clerked for Jack Weinstein in the Eastern District of New York. It's one of the most famous district court judges ever to sit on the bench. Um, and that experience gave me an insight into how the legal system actually works, how the courtroom works, what's really going on behind those closed chamber doors, um, how things are done. And um, I can tell you that asset protection and my, my um, career in asset protection is really a function of all those experiences understanding risk, understanding how, you know, it can go from nothing to absolutely completely wiping you out in that 4%. And so um, today, I hope we can communicate some of that and just help your listeners understand where their risks lie 
and then how they can how they can adjust for them, how they can protect against them, um, and manage those risks. Yeah, I I think that's fantastic, uh, and I I have a ton of questions. About okay, yeah, that. that's starting, just shoot. Go for it. Yeah, starting with. Uh, so when you say risk, like define risk for me, what, what do you mean? What is the risk? Yeah. So risk is absolutely anything that could threaten your wealth. So devaluation of a currency is risk. Um, political is a risk. Uh, creditors are a risk. Uh, deal selection is a risk. Um, deal structure is a risk. Um, I've, I've had clients get into deals where the structure was wrong. They didn't understand the structure and they lost everything and actually exposed themselves to even more. So mm -hmm. risk is everything. And so most of the time people kind of define risk as these really basic things that um, they think insurance can just handle. Insurance is great and it handles some of the defined risks, but it's a very small piece of the big picture. Um, uh, people who sell insurance say, oh, I'm a risk, you know, risk professional, I'm helping you to manage risk. Well, insurance is a component of managing risk. And definitely everybody should integrate that into their overall financial plan. But it's just a piece of it. Um, wealth advisors also say, well, we're risk managers, because we're going to help you not lose your, your capital. So we're going to manage your risk by choosing a portfolio that manages the risk. That's true too. That's also managing risk. Um, what you're doing is helping your listeners manage risk, right? Helping them understand what a deal should look like, how, you know, educating them so that they're making good decisions and they actually can get a return on their money versus just gambling. The, the biggest thing I think I see a misunderstanding about is how much risk someone has to take to get a certain return. And what happens in the scale is that if you if you if you're unsophisticated about this, you end up taking a lot more risk for a, a minimally increased return because you think you need to. Whereas the true professionals, people who really understand their craft, can take a little bit more risk to get that same extra return. And in a bull market where everybody's making money, nobody notices this. But if you've lived through a crash like 2008, believe me, this will all come out. And so, you know, in the, in the world we're in today, everybody needs to be paying attention to not what happens if everything goes as planned, but what happens if everything doesn't go as planned. That's when you're going to find out who did their homework and who didn't. Yeah, I love what you said there because one of my favorite topics is is risk adjusted return, and and I always try to communicate that to the listeners that you know it's it's not about absolute return. I mean, I mean right. that's great. You know, somebody can tell you they're going to get you, they're they're going to ten x your money, right? right? Right. But what's the likelihood that that's actually going to occur? Mm -hmm. You know, and and what's the probability, and what is the risk you're taking on? And so, if you're adjusting for all those things, higher return, but much higher risk, you know, does that actually play out? So, can you dig into that topic just just a little more? Then, I'd love to hear your perspective around that idea of of risk adjusted return. And and you mentioned that you said you know most of the novices they're taking on way more risk than they need to for just a little bit more return because right. they're not looking at the complete picture. They're just looking at that return number. They're looking at that IRR or that average return and what that is, but not focusing on everything else that's out here, right? That could go wrong or, or even not happen that would have to happen, right? Right, yeah, the risk adjusted return is, is the kind of the whole key to being a sophisticated investor. If you understand that, then you'll ask different questions. You'll understand, okay, what risk am I really taking? So, so from my perspective, as an asset protection attorney, one of the risks that I see people just absolutely fail to consider completely, it's just not even part of their equation, is what am I exposing myself from the standpoint of a lawsuit? And how, how, how is what I'm doing going to increase that risk even a little bit? And so when we take asset protection seriously and we actually do things to protect against it, what we're really doing is we're trying to minimize that risk so that you can take a little bit more risk adjusted for a higher return. 
So if you want to be in a deal that is going to give you maybe uh, some active management so you get some tax benefits, um, as many real estate deals are, so there's, there's, there's opportunities to where you can say, okay, I need the heads on, on taxes and I want to be in the deal. So I'll have a lot of clients call and say, yeah, I'm going to be a general partner for the first two years of this deal so that I can get the tax benefits. But I'm taking on the responsibility of, of you know, signing on the dotted line for the personal guarantees around, around the, the, the notes or, or right. the obligations. Okay, great. Now you could do that with nothing backing you up and that would be one level of risk. You can do that with a full asset protection plan that really minimizes your, your exposure to having that risk called. And that's another level of risk. And, and if you're doing that, that second option where you're actually minimizing that risk, you could do more of those deals. You could be more comfortable doing those deals. Um, same with any other structure that you're looking at. If you can minimize the downside from every other angle, and then you can just focus on, okay, what is the actual downside for this deal? That Then you can make a fair apples to apples comparison. What, what a lot of people just focus on is the deal structure and, and just never look at anything around it. Um, mm -hmm. that's why when you're, especially in real estate, which is big now, right? Everybody's finally kind of figured out the real estate people knew this all along, by the way, they, they've, they've known this for, you know, 50 years and they've always, uh, my real estate clients are only in real estate because nothing else can give them the returns that real estate can give them. The rest of the investing world has found it. And the challenge with that is that. Um, when, when you come in and you haven't spent your life in an industry, you're relying a great deal on other people's expertise. So being able to assess that and make good decisions about who you're investing your money with or who you're learning from is, is, the, is the difference maker. And again, when we're in a bull market, when everything's going up all the time, it's easy to hide the, the, um, the, the less competent people inside of that because the deals work, even if they're not perfect. Right. But if the, if the market changes, if interest rates go up, if, if property prices go down, if occupancy rates change, um, now you're going to find out who structured their deals properly. So um, gotcha. that's part of what I do is just help clients get their personal side fully buttoned up. So that then they can focus on, 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 on following your advice and doing the deal properly. Gotcha. So to, I guess, paraphrase or just kind of get to the heart of asset protection is really focused on limiting your likelihood of, of a lawsuit. Is that really what, what the focus becomes? So it's um, limiting the likelihood that a lawsuit will actually uh, reach your assets. So we can't change that um, you, you, you're, you can get sued. Everybody can get sued. There's no way to say, oh, well, by doing asset protection, you're not going to get sued. Mm -hmm. But we can definitely change the outcome of the lawsuit. So if two people get sued, one of them has full asset protection in place and one of them does not, and they have the same level of assets, the early in the case, what's going to happen is the one that the plaintiff, the suing people look at that has asset protection, they're going to have to reconsider what the value proposition of going forward on this lawsuit is. Because if there's no chance to collect, even if they can win the lawsuit, then what's the value of spending money to go forward on the lawsuit? And versus the other guy who has no asset protection, they get sued for the exact same reason, for the exact same amount. They do their analysis and they go, okay, well, if we win, we're going to collect. They've got money sitting right there. It's unprotected. It's available. So now they, can get, they, they get to do the analysis on what the cost benefit of proceeding with the lawsuit is. So my goal is to make them look at you, uh, my clients and say, oh, the cost benefit of proceeding is not worth it. Let's either drop this lawsuit or let's settle it for something, you know, really reasonable. Um, so we're, we're, we're changing the, the playing field. We're changing the mathematical calculation that the person suing you is going to have to make because yeah. if they can't collect, what's the use of winning a judgment if it still is, doesn't result in any money and who we're really focusing on is is the attorney 
because the attorneys are usually working for a cut of the of the proceeds. Right. And so if the attorney is working on a contingent fee for a cut of the proceeds and the attorney realizes, hey, uh, there's not going to be any proceeds because this guy's got asset protection. I'm working for nothing. His motivation or her motivation just goes away. Right. So, um, well, I, I want to get into like, like what asset protection actually is. What are you actually doing for your clients? But before yeah. we go there, I, I did have a couple more questions related to just the idea we were going on around this, this risk adjusted return and kind of, sure. kind of expanding on that. So, so it seems like, like, obviously, if you're going to be a general partner in a deal, you're taking on considerable, considerably more risk than if mm -hmm. you were to be a limited partner, right? Correct. Yeah, absolutely. I think my understanding, at least, and, and I think I know what I'm talking about here. I hope so. I got to share yeah, yeah. is that that the limited partner really is only liable for the amount that they've invested. I mean, that's what they can lose, right? right. They're like, if they're, if the, or if the company gets sued, the limited partners are not a part of the, right. the bigger piece of it, right? So it's really right. just up to if you invested 50,000, that's your liability. But when you're a general partner, you're on the other side of the fence, you're exposed really to everything, right? You could sue. And if you're not protected in the right way, they could come after your personal assets, your house, everything else, right? Garnish wages, you know, do anything. Right. So, so tying that back into risk adjusted return, I think this is where people sometimes miss the boat a little bit is, you know, on these deals, if you can get you get a pretty substantial return for, for being a passive investor, right? With a very limited risk. And maybe you get, I don't know, three, four, five percentage points more on your return if you're on the GP side, uh -huh. but also you're exponentially increasing your amount of risk, right? right. So as one of those risk-adjusted return things, I think that's something people need to think about is where are they comfortable? You know, is the extra return... I mean, not only is it a ton of work, but also the liability that they're opening themselves up to, right? And are they prepared to do that? And that's where you come in. Right. Yeah, exactly. And um, for, for most people, they shouldn't be a GP. They should be a, they should be a passive investor because that fits the profile of what they're willing to do, the amount of risk they're willing to take. I see some people come and they, 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 they have a misunderstanding, they kind of think, oh, well, it's pretty much the same risk, but I get a bigger return. All I have to do is, you know, kind of put my personal guarantee there. I'm not going to have to do any of the main work. Um, right. And I, I, that's always a red flag for me. That's like, whoa, 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 wait a second. Because I've seen those deals go bad. I I've many, many times had people call me going, well, I got into this side of the deal. I really didn't understand. I was basically told nothing to worry about. This deal is going to be great. And of course, that's the way everybody wants to see a deal when you're putting it together. But when the deal doesn't work, I have one particular client. Um, that's exactly what happened. He got, he got flipped from a passive to an active at some point in the deal. They came to him and said, hey, we, we'd like to flip you over. And you know, here's, here's a bigger uh, outcome for you. You're going to get more return. You get all this. Mm -hmm. And, and, and it, he didn't understand the risk that he was taking on. He just didn't understand it. He really thought he was basically in the same position, just getting, getting more return. And then the deal didn't complete. It just got stopped in the middle and um, it all blew up. And lo and behold, he ended up holding the bag for, for, for everybody. It was, it wow. was really a bad outcome. So You've got to understand that. And so those are the kind of questions you want to be asking. Um, I'm not saying it's wrong to be on the GP side. I'm saying you have to understand very clearly what your additional risk is and is the additional return worth it. So, and that's the whole concept of risk adjusted return. Yeah. How much risk am I taking for that additional return? If you have to double your risk for a 10% increase in return, is that a good deal? Probably not. If you have to take 10% more risk for double the return, is that a good deal? Probably, right? Mm -hmm. So, but even then you got to look at it. I mean, uh, uh, what's your underlying risk to the whole thing? Um, I do love the concept of, of separating risk and, uh, and assets. That's a huge fundamental key concept of asset protection is separating risk from value, risk from assets. Um, gotcha. And that's a big part of what we're doing all the time. Gotcha. Well, well, 
first of all, I, and I love the insight in, into another way to look at uh, risk-adjusted return. I, I think that's really valuable for, for our listeners. Uh, but let's get into like what asset protection really is. What are the pieces sure. of it? What do you, somebody comes to you and says, they say, Doug, I got to protect my assets. What are you doing for them? Yeah. Yeah. So, so first step when anyone comes to me is to understand their situation. So um, a couple components of that one, understand what they're up to. Do they have a job? Do they have a job and they're an investor? Are they just investing? Um, do they have a business? Do they have employees. In other words, want to understand how the money is coming in the door. Um, you know, what their full situation is, what kind of businesses they have or, or what kind of um, investments they have. Um, so that's kind of helping me understand the risk profile and, and, and where the source of the funds are. Then we look at the assets themselves and we just go down asset by asset, you know, your home, what state your home is in, all the real estate you own. Um, are you in syndication deals? Okay. What do those look like? Cash and securities, retirement plans. So an analysis looks like really just talking about every single asset. And when we're done with that, I'm able to give them a really clear picture of what assets might be already protected, which is often many of them, um, because we have asset protection built into many of the legal systems already in place. So as an example, <clears throat> if you live in Texas or in Florida and you have a home and it's paid for, that's asset protection. Um, it, whatever equity you have in that home is 100% asset protected. So you can have a $5 million you know, condo on the beach in South Beach, declare bankruptcy, totally, you know, have $50 million in creditors, and you get to keep the $5 million home. That is a form of asset protection. Um, same is true in Texas. If you have a retirement plan, like a 401k, or an ERISA qualified plan, a federally qualified plan, that is also asset protected. So occasionally, I'll get a call from somebody, they live in Texas, and they have a home, worth, you know, a couple million dollars, then they have an ERISA plan with a couple more million dollars. That's it. There's nothing for them to do. I tell them, congratulations, you're already protected. Go out and enjoy your life. On the other hand, if somebody calls me from California with the exact same scenario, um, different story, their house is, is, is not protected. And let's say their, their, their $2 million is not in an ERISA plan. It's just sitting in a brokerage account, totally exposed, right? So- yeah. We, we, we look at, uh, and, and we look at what's already protected and then I can tell them, okay, here's what your exposure is. Here are the assets that are exposed. And then I can actually prescribe, here's what we can do to protect them. And it really involves three primary tools, limited liability companies, which I think most people are familiar with. Um, that's a very straightforward tool available in virtually every state. And it's a great tool to wrap up risky type investments. Mm -hmm. And then um, I connect those to a holding company. And in the holding company, we're almost always going to use a, 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 a holding company outside of your home state. Uh, we're going to use a state that is better than most other states for protection of that. Um, and that's called charging order protection. That means that if someone sues a member of an LLC or a partner of a limited partnership in a state that has exclusive charging order protection, that the creditor can't force a liquidation of that underlying asset. And so it's a great, it's a great middle tool. Um, and the holding company has many other benefits to it. And if the uh, assets demand, we actually move on to the third level, which is called an asset protection trust. And that's a specific type of trust designed only to protect assets. It has very strong spendthrift provisions built into it. And it, um, it, it, it is domiciled in a jurisdiction that specifically statutorily allows for that type of trust to be created. Um, and so that's what we're really doing. By the end of the analysis, I can say, okay, here's what I would recommend for you um, to, to, to button up the rest of your assets. Gotcha. Interesting. So there's three levels of protection that, that are all coming together to, to create this wall, if you will. Right, right. And we might use one or two or all three. 
It just, it just depends on the asset mix. You know, if you have a hundred thousand dollars and you're investing in your first deal, or you've, you know, you put 50 in one syndication, you're about to do the second 50, you might just need one of those tools, you know, a simple, a simple, uh, uh, either an LLC or, or a limited partnership holding company to start your syndication investing. That might be all you need. On the other hand, if you've got three or four of your own rental properties that you're managing yourself and you've got some syndication deals and you've got a home that you own and you've got, you know, some, some assets, some cash or liquid or cryptocurrency nowadays is a big one um, that are just sitting in your name. Well, then you might need more. Uh, might need both levels or all three levels of that. Gotcha. So is, is the first step really to just get get everything out of your personal name? Is that kind of a general? Yeah, strategy? yeah, that would be a yeah, that would be a good statement, right? Your your first step is really, you don't want to hold anything in your personal name, because there is no way on earth that you can unattach yourself from yourself, right? You're going to be driving the car, you're going to be, you know, signing papers, you're going to be guaranteeing loans at banks, you're going to be doing all these things. So if assets are in your name, they are exposed. So here's the irony, the ironic twist of asset protection is that the best thing you can do is keep all the risk in your personal name and put all the assets in your asset protection structures. Yeah, and that's really interesting, but it, it makes a ton of sense. Yeah. Um, so, you know, I, I've heard that LLCs really don't provide much protection. And I'm sure that's why they're like the first step in the process. But how much protection does putting something like my syndication investments, maybe the ones where I'm a passive into an LLC, how much protection does that provide? Yeah, so Kent, that's a really good point. And there's just a ton of uh, uh, understanding and misunderstanding around, you know, how much protection does an LLC provide? So an LLC is, is organized under a state law. That state law has a fundamental set of, of, of statute, a statutory framework that authorizes the limited liability company. And in there, it also sets out the remedy. And the remedy is what happens if one of the members of a limited liability company has a liability? How are, how, how are they going to, how is that creditor of that member going to get access to that asset of the limited liability company? And that's where the protection comes in. So understanding the weakness of an LLC first requires us to understand the strength and, and, it's, and it, it, the conceptual strength. So the conceptual strength is, is that if you're a member of an LLC and you have a creditor, that creditor cannot foreclose on the LLC and force a distribution to you or to them. They can only get a, what's called a charging order or a charge against your interest but they can't force a distribution. And so the benefit of that is, yes, they have the right to get to that distribution when it comes, but they don't mm -hmm. have the right to force it to come. And so, so, so it kind of freezes everything. So mm -hmm. if we put that in the context of a syndication and you're a limited partner and you end up with a creditor and that creditor comes to the general partner and says, hey, I want his share. I want Kent's share. He owes me this money. The general partner is going to say, well, we're not distributing anything right now, so just, just wait it out. The general partner is also pretty friendly to you, right? They probably uh, want you to keep investing in their deals, and you're, you're, you're not, they're not friends with your creditor. So mm -hmm. they're probably going to do everything they can not to make a distribution to you. Mm -hmm. And so that creditor might be sitting there for a long, 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 long time before they could get something. The theory is, is, well, if they're going to sit there long enough, maybe they're willing to take a settlement of a lot less than they actually have a judgment for so that they can just get something and go away. So that's gotcha. what protection is. That's what LLCs do to protect assets. Where their weakness is, is that if you create an LLC that either has just a single member in it or just you and your wife, and that's it, then and you get the same creditor and you're the managing member or you're the general partner, there has been cases where the court has said, well, the charging order is meant to protect all these diverse investors. But here, it's a single member LLC. You're the only guy. So there's no benefit of it. Excuse me. So there's no benefit of, of us 
standing behind the charging order, we're going to go ahead and allow for another remedy, which is to go ahead and break in and foreclose on that LLC. So that is where the, the, what you just said comes from. It comes from the fact that some LLCs, if they're structured as single member and in certain jurisdictions have been broken. And so, so yes, they can be weaker than uh, being in a multi-member entity. However, it does not mean they're valueless. They still have value. And that is why it is the first level. You, you said it correctly. It's why it's the first level in the structure. And if we layer that so that the LLC is here, but it's owned not by you individually, but by a holding company, which is multi-member, we really get rid of that weakness. And so the holding company with the LLC is a very, very important step. Gotcha. And, but what if it is just you as an investor? How do you, how do you create a multi-member holding company? So, so usually you would have some kind of family members, a wife, kids, parents, um, you do have to find some other members. So, gotcha. if, you know, um, very, very rarely do we have a client come in and said, I don't have anybody in the world, not one person that I want involved in this. Okay, well, then we'll, we'll have to work around that. Um, and we may end up with a single member entity that then the trust becomes that much more important. So mm -hmm. the single member in that kind of case is not going to be still the client. It's going to be the trust, the asset protection trust. And so we, we solve for it by just layering up one more level of protection. Gotcha. And, and how does that holding company, because it just seems like another company on top of a company, how, how does that create like such an additional layer of protection? Well, so um, the courts really do have process. They, they have to go through the process. So when you have a company, let's call it um, you know, a Texas LLC owned by an Arizona holding company, and Arizona is a great state for holding companies, um, then you have uh, a judge in Texas that says, hey, I, I, want, I want to break into this thing, but he doesn't really have full authority to make that decision. So he's going to give the, the plaintiff a judgment. The plaintiffs are going to then have to come to Arizona, domesticate the judgment and go to the Arizona judge and say, hey, I, I need to break into this thing. The judge over here called the whole thing an alter ego and he wanted to just break through it all completely. Um, now the Arizona judge has to buy into that. And if you're in the right jurisdiction, those judges aren't really open to being bought into because there's an incentive for jurisdictions like Arizona and Wyoming and Nevada to be seen as strong and mm -hmm. to not break into things. So in Florida, for example, we had a case where uh, the single member LLC was cut through by the judge. Well, in Arizona, we had the same kind of case and the, the court in Arizona said, no, single members as good as multi-member can't break into it. So even single member in the right jurisdiction can be strong and can that charging order can hold up. So um, jurisdiction is very important. It's part of that process and understanding. And it's not just throw up a Wyoming LLC. I hear that all the time. Oh, Wyoming mm -hmm. LLC, that's the answer to every problem. Yeah. It might be, it might be a component of it, but you gotta look at it in a full plan. And this is where you know, getting really good advice and getting a plan set out in the beginning is better than piecing it together as you go along. Yeah, absolutely. And then let, let's hit on the third layer then. So we, so we bring it all home, this, this yeah. trust, this asset protection trust, how does that fit in? And yeah, so trusts are an amazing concept. They're, they're from English common law, from, from our very inception of our legal system, we, we recognize trust because England did. And a trust is really a, a, a simple structure that says, hey, so if I give you $20, Kent, and say, hey, you're taking the kids to the park, you know, um, here's $20 for ice cream for my, for my son. And uh, you say, okay, great. Um, I'll get him some ice cream. And I say, oh, but, but only one and no soda. And if his friend comes up and asks for money, don't give his friend money. His, 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 you know. um, and so we just created a trust. I'm the settler of the trust. I'm the grantor, the creator. You're the trustee because you have the $20. So you're holding it. And my son is the beneficiary. And those little conditions that I asked you as the trustee to put around it, like only ice cream, no soda, and don't, don't give it to this, this friend of his, those are called spendthrift provisions. So they're conditions on which the beneficiary can get access to the money. 
And so you as the trustee are, are in that duty to say, hey, your dad said ice cream, but no soda. Okay, I'm going to follow that. Um, and, and I'm not going to give it to this kid over here that you, you owe, owe the money to. The same is true when we create an asset protection trust. We're doing exactly that. The, the key is, is that we're making the creator of the trust also the beneficiary. So you can create an asset protection trust, appoint a trustee for yourself and say, hey, don't even give me back my own money if there's a creditor trying to reach it. And gotcha. that concept is incredibly powerful. There's three ways you can do that. There's three, three fundamental um, uh, platforms you can do it on. One is a fully offshore trust. So the first jurisdiction to have a statute that allowed for that was the Cook Islands in 1984. They passed the Cook Islands Trust Act, which specifically allowed for you to create a trust for yourself and protect it from your creditors. This was very controversial, Kent, back then. I mean, mm -hmm. US, US attorneys were going, that's not going to work. We don't think that should be uh, public policy in the US is definitely not going to approve of that. These are going to fail. Well, what happened is they didn't fail at all. They worked brilliantly. And the Cook Islands became known for really strong asset protection. 1998, Alaska said, hey, not only do we not think this is a bad idea, we think it's a great idea. And they passed a statute. And that was the first domestic asset protection trust. And quickly thereafter, we've got Nevada and Wyoming and Utah and South Dakota and Tennessee. We actually have 19 U.S. states that have domestic asset protection trust legislation on the books. So what that means is that we've got, we've got almost half of the states that think asset protection is a great idea. And we've got uh, 24 different jurisdictions offshore that think it's a great idea. And so here's the difference. Offshore is incredibly protective because they don't have to pay attention to any kind of U.S. court orders. In fact, they're prohibited. So if you have an offshore trust, security is the huge benefit. Mm -hmm. The cost of that is that it's definitely more expensive to create. We're talking thirty to $50,000 to set one up. And it's definitely more expensive to maintain, um, probably around $10,000 a year. I tell clients to budget for an offshore trust. And you have a fair amount of IRS compliance because it's a foreign trust and the IRS wants to know everything about every foreign entity that a U.S. person is involved with. So, so definitely it's, 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 it's something to use in certain cases. And certainly if you're being attacked, you'd rather be offshore. Sure. Um, but it, it's a high hurdle for a lot of normal investors. The other side of the fence in the domestic, um, easier to maintain. There's no foreign components, so less compliance. Um, more, more trust companies, more options, um, kind of easier, less expensive. The problem is, is that they really haven't held up very well because Alaska can't just disregard a California court or a Texas court, and neither can Nevada. They all have to domesticate it. So the domestic trusts um, haven't fared very well when they're actually challenged. And so, um, you know, uh, it's like packing a parachute that maybe is going to open, um, not, not a great idea, right? Yeah. That's not so, a risk I want to take. Right. So, so if you're spending all this time and effort and money to set up an asset protection plan that maybe is going to work, um, I, I don't know, that's not really in my book, a good deal. Even if it's a little easier, let's, let's focus on making it work. The third option is really the one that, um, is, is the most popular. It's the one that I do I actually created this one way back long ago, and it's called the bridge trust. And it's really a hybrid between the two. So it's a foreign trust. It's registered in a foreign jurisdiction, has all the foreign protection. But then from a compliance standpoint, it meets the test to be treated as a domestic trust for tax purposes. So the maintenance is just like a domestic trust. It's simple to maintain. The client can be the trustee of the trust for themselves. Um, and, and it's just much easier but if something happens and the, the train is going off the rails, well, we can cross that bridge and we have a fully foreign asset protection trust. Gotcha. So, so in the event something happens, it becomes a foreign trust? Yeah, well, it's already a foreign trust. We just drop the U.S. Um, component above it and, it and we just keep the foreign component because it's really both at both times. It's like it's holding two passports. Um, gotcha. So we just drop the U.S. passport if, if, if something happens that's really big and we need to protect the assets. And we connect that to the holding company. So the trust owns the majority of the holding company. 
which owns the assets and all the LLCs and the syndications and your cash and your cryptocurrency and everything else. Gotcha. So that that structure then coming down ends up really, really owning all of your assets within that one trust structure. Correct. Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. Yep. Well, it, it's fascinating. I think it's, uh, it's, it's not too well known. There, there's a lot of components to it, obviously, but yeah. it sounds, um, I mean, sounds really important. I mean, I know that we're a fairly litigious, uh, society, you know, people yeah. are getting sued all the time. And, uh, you know, I know there's, there's a quote out there, like if you're in real estate, it's not, you know, if it gets sued, it's when, yeah. and, uh, you know, knock on wood haven't, but, yeah. uh, but yeah, I mean, it's a lot to think about a lot to, to think about. Are you really managing your risk as you look at these investments? And, and as you, um, especially look to be a general partner or look to, you know, take ownership of a rental or, or any yeah. of that. Right. I mean, even a single family rental could lead to a lot of risk. Right. So really right. good, Doug. I appreciate you coming on and, uh, enlightening yeah, us a little bit before I let you go. Uh, I want to take you through our keys, to the success round okay. These questions. I want to ask you the first one is, I think you'll have a really, you'll actually have a really unique, uh, spin on this one. I think is what is one question. If you could only ask one question that every investor should ask their deal sponsor. Mm, okay. Um, yeah, so so again, from my perspective, the most interesting question is the deal structure. I want to know how it's structured and how I'm holding my piece of it, um, including how they structure their piece of it. So here's one really misunderstood thing. People think if I protect myself, I'm good. I don't need to worry about how anybody else protected themselves. It's actually quite the opposite. It's like a chain every link is is important. So I, I would ask, how is your deal structured? How is your general partnership structured? Um, mm -hmm. That's not a question anybody ever asks the GPs, right? They're going to be like, what? What do you mean? And like, yeah, I want to know how you structured your general partnership. I actually want them protected. I don't want them falling to pieces in, in the deal that I'm involved in. So I care that they've thought through their own asset protection um, and I don't want them unprotected. I want them protected because it makes the entire deal more sound. Um, so, and, and, and that includes maybe saying, hey, and how are other people taking their interest? Um, if they're all taking them in their own name, that's one thing. If they're all taking them in holding companies or LLC, um, and, and the sponsor will often be able to kind of point people in the direction of, of, of a better structure. Th that's really interesting. So this idea of as as a general partner, if your assets are protected, then are you're also like, so if, if you're a general partner and, and you're running a deal and, and that deal is at some point exists in this structure we just described, that then affords protection down the chain to right, well, for the deal and to the limited partner? Right, right. Well, think about it. If you're a general partner, you're probably a general partner on more than one deal, right? Yeah. So, so your general partner, if, if your general partner has, let's call it 10 deals out there and they've structured it all so that every deal is a possible complete catastrophe for them because they're completely unprotected and a deal unrelated to yours blows up over here and it blows up the GP that is related to yours. Well, now your deal is going to have a problem because, and I've seen this happen in real time where the GP blows up and all of a sudden they're scrambling and every other deal starts to implode around it. So I want my GPs competent enough to have their own house in order. And, mm -hmm. and again, that's not something I've ever seen LPs ever ask. They, they, it almost feels like, well, it's not none of my business. It's, it's, yeah. it's definitely your business. That's if I'm gonna give you my money, I wanna know how you structured yourself. And if you can't answer it, I'm probably not going to give you my money. Yeah, no, that that's great. I, uh, that is a, it's a good twist on the question. I like yeah. that. So what are you most proud of in your career? Um, well, you know, as an attorney, I, I tell people I'm an attorney and, and, you know, there's usually a joke that follows or, you know, something saying, oh, you know, sorry, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, and, and I laugh because, um, I wouldn't want to be an attorney if I look at most attorneys out there. Um, I just wouldn't want to do their job. I wouldn't want to be a litigator or, you know, there's so much conflict in this industry. I think what I'm most proud of is that 
Um, I'm the opposite. I'm, I kind of consider myself the anti-attorney attorney. My whole mission in life is to protect my clients from lawsuits, to keep them out of trouble. Um, I, I, and, and, and I think a testament to that is just the long-term nature of my clients. Most of my clients have been with me for, you know, they start and they never are not with me. It's a long-term relationship. It's not a transaction. It's not a one-off thing where, oh, I did, a, I did a trust for you. And then, you know, and most of my colleagues, when I ask how many clients do you have, they go, oh, well, I've, I've probably done this many trusts. And I say, well, no, how many clients do you have? Like how many people do you talk to regular basis that are still consider you their attorney? And it's usually a tiny little fraction of all the people they've actually worked with. Um, I'm, I'm most proud of the fact that it's really quite the opposite almost everybody until they age out or die, or, you know, they get to the point where they just truly don't need me. Um, they almost always stay with me the entire time. And I think, I think that's, that's really important. Yeah. I mean, relate relationships are everything, right? And that, that's everything. a testament to, uh, to the business that you built. What's a book that everybody should read? You know, it's funny, I get asked this question occasionally, because, you know, there's a lot of this, it's a common question. And um, it's, it's not a book, but there's a guy, there's a guy named Deming W. Edwards. He is the father of total quality. Um, he was around in the 60s, and the, even in the 40s after World War Two, uh, in the 50s. And um, he's the one that really came up with the concept that changed everything around how we see quality so his entire concept is built around focus on the first first 15 percent of your process and the other 85 percent really is going to take care of itself whereas at the time in the 40s and 50s the the quality control meant standing at the end of the production line and taking the rejects off the conveyor belt that was quality so he flipped that around. And ironically, America didn't want to hear it. After World War II, um, industry in America thought, hey, we're the greatest in the world. We just, we just scaled up and, and won the global war. We don't need to fix our process. And so where he went was Japan. And he gave a three-week lecture in Japan. Three weeks, that's all it was. And Honda was there and Hyundai and Mitsubishi and every big Japanese company were there. And they listened with rapt attention because they realized, okay, this country just, just did the impossible. Let's figure out how they did it. And he taught them what we refused to learn. That is why Japanese quality today is still better than American quality. We're only now trying to catch up to understand that that is the most important thing. And so uh, um, just look up his work and pay attention to it and try to understand this one concept. Everything you do in life, it's about the first 15%. It's about the first 15% when you set up your legal structure, when you, when you de decide what kind of investor you're gonna be, when you surround yourself with advisors, focus on the beginning and the end will really fall into place. Um, so many people do it the opposite. They, 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 they don't focus on the beginning at all. They get halfway through it and then they try to correct the mistakes. That's the wrong forest. So um, uh, Deming W. Edwards, that's, that's the guy. Um, he's, he's just uh, uh, amazing. And the people I know who know about him and who have implemented have amazing businesses. So um, that's what I would say to that question. Yeah, that, that's fascinating. I, I've never heard of him. I'm going to have to look it up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And so last question, Doug, what is your number one key to success? Um. So I, you know, honestly, um, I'd say uh, focusing on that first 15% and attention to the detail around it. Um, you know, really understanding what, asking the right question as to what I'm trying to actually achieve here. In other words, defining what, what I'm trying to accomplish. That's part of that first 15%, right? Is, is actually figuring out what question am I asking or solving for? And again, I see so many people that they just kind of get wrapped up in a process and they end up halfway through it and they've never really asked that question. They don't even know what they're trying to solve for. If you don't know where you're going, any road will do. And, um, and, and you will end up on somebody else's plan. So 
figuring out what you want for your life, planning it out and saying, okay, this is what I want. And realizing that you have that power, you have that ability to actually guide your own life in the direction that you want to see it go. And if you need models for that, which we all do, find people that model that. Find mentors, find figures and historical figures, um, read the works of people that have figured this out. So for me, the key to success is really asking the right question in the beginning, defining what it is that you're trying to accomplish, and then paying attention to those details, especially in the beginning, and setting up your systems in a way that are, are going to get you there. And then everything else will fall into place. And by the way, this applies to relationships as well. So if you're married, this is, this is critical. If you don't get that first 15% right and set up the systems of how you're going to deal with conflict in the marriage, how you're going to manage things, marriages are inevitably going to fail. So, so figure it out. It, it, is, it is, to me, it's the key to life and success. Yeah, I think that's amazing advice. Appreciate you sharing that with us. Yeah, pleasure. And so Doug, before I let you leave, if uh, folks want to learn more about you and what you're doing and asset protection, how can they get a hold of you? Uh, probably the best thing is go to my website. It's lodmel.com, L-O-D-M-E-L-L. There's a wealth of stuff on there, videos and tons of articles and case summaries and all sorts of stuff. Um, if you want to reach me, I'm happy to schedule a call. You can just call my office, 602-230-2014, or email me, doug at lodmail.com. That's my direct email address. Um, I'll answer it. And um, uh, you know, I'm happy to talk to anybody that is interested in this, um, and especially if you're, you know, you probably know already if, if this is, is, is uh, ringing, ringing true and um, you're going, wow, I need, to, I need to focus on this. If it is, I would definitely recommend you call. Awesome. Well, we'll make sure that's all in the show notes so folks can, can reach you. And uh, with that, Doug, thank you for coming on the show today and providing so much value, really interesting stuff. I hope people take it to heart and, and take some action to, uh, again, keep what they've earned. And yeah. uh, thank you so much for coming on. Yeah, my pleasure, Ken. Thanks for having me. Thanks for listening to another great episode of Ritter on Real Estate. Hit the subscribe button to make sure you don't miss out on the content that will make you a better investor. Also, visit KentRitter.com for articles, videos, and tools curated just for passive investors. Until next time, this is Kent Ritter with Ritter on Real Estate. Now go out and invest like a pro.